This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So hello, uh, I'm Rachel Ball, and I'm here with filmmaker Anna Biller, and I'm going to be interviewing her about her amazing film, The Love Witch. So right off the bat, I kind of want to ask the look of the film. Um, it's such a like rich feast for the eyes. Um, I'm curious about the importance of your unique visual to telling the Love Witch's story. Um, well, film is a visual medium, so I try to tell as much of my story visually as possible. And, um, you know, my favorite films are films where you can understand the plot without even hearing the dialogue, you know, like silent films and a lot of the classic films, which are so visual and the editing is so carefully done. And um, I just think of this as, is kind of what they call cinematic. So I try to use my sets and costumes and my colors and my lighting and everything all kind of as is, is characters in the story. And um, I watch a lot of classic movies and I just feel like they had so much attention to detail and they created a kind of a world. And that was just a part of the process of making a film. I think film style has changed, like what people put in films has changed, but I think so much more of stories used to be told um, visually. And to me, that's, that's very exciting to watch a movie that's told visually. Yeah, and you brought up uh, sort of being inspired by classic films. Uh, I wonder if I could ask you to dig in a little deeper into um, this like rich tapestry of references um, to other genres, production contexts, and like moments in film history. Um, could you tell us about some of those references and perhaps the role of cinephilia um, in your process? Yeah, I... Um... You know, when I was growing up, I I watched mostly classic movies and I kind of had an aversion to the movies that were being made at the time I was growing up. And um, I, th I think it's because movies became very masculine starting around the early 70s. And, you know, these older films, one thing I loved from the time I was a very small child, I loved the gowns and the glamour. I loved all the female characters and all their witty dialogue. So I love the pre-code movies and the noir films and, um, you know, the women's pictures. There were just tons of women's pictures, like all about Eve or, you know, Vertigo. They're all about a woman's experience in the world. Um, I feel like I learned a lot about being a woman, you know, growing up into being a woman from these movies. Um, but also, you know, I got in high school, I got really into uh, European filmmaking. I started going to out to the theater to see some of these um, revival things and I got very into Cocteau and Bergman and Jean Renoir and um, Michael Powell and Jacques Demy. Um, so it's really, it's really women's pictures, pre-code noir, you know, all those. So all the movies that were uh, made between, you know, around 1930 and 1960, basically, <laughs> is kind of what I'm really inspired by. Yeah, sort of as a related question, right? Because you bring up how um, women's pictures and classical Hollywood were so on women, but also perhaps they were made with the male gaze in mind. Uh, I bring this up because you mentioned... Um, 
in interviews being really inspired by Laura Mulvey um, and visual pleasure and narrative cinema, her famous essay. Um, so I'm curious how Mulvey's work sort of informed your creation of The Love Witch, which also has so much affection for the look of these um, classic films. Um, because it seems to me like a film that sort of ruminates on the exploitation of women's bodies at the same time that it really skillfully delivers these almost hypnotic images of beauty and female glamour. Um, so I'm really curious about the, the tension there. Well, you know, Laura Mulvey, when I read that essay in school, it was like being struck by lightning because it clarifies so many things for me about my own view. And, you know, like I said, um, growing up feeling alienated by the newer movies and then some for men and it's they're not it's a male gaze and um and then you know i think she revised she made like a revision to her essay where she said um she actually included the women's pictures as movies that were for female visual pleasure but she didn't in the first essay and i think that's correct because i think this is one reason I latched onto those movies is because they were made for women and for female visual pleasure. So rather than, I think like being a, a film student and having all this anxiety about, you know, it's sort of being politically incorrect to um, do glamour or to do um, all these things that may have se seemed retrogressive. Um, I just thought, actually, it's not retrogressive. What it is, is it's female. And it's not even necessarily like it's female in a bad way. It's just female. <laughs> it's just about being, a these movies are about what it is to be a female. And it's just all the different like kaleidoscopic aspects of it. So it isn't really whether it's about, for me, it's not about exploitation if I'm talking about myself, right? If I'm talking about myself, my own sexuality, my own interests, my own desires, that's not exploitation. It's like, it's the way a man looks at it, um, the way a man looks at nudity, the way a man looks at glamour. I mean, even in those movies from the 30s, like you take a, take a Busby Berkeley movie, which I love Busby Berkeley. I don't love it because it's got nude women and I want to have sex with them. <laughs> I love it because it's got the glamour and the pleasure and the fantasy and the sets and the kind of and the compositions and all the things that I take from it. So those movies were designed to give one thing to women and one thing to men. You know, so the men are, are like lusting after the, the nudity and the women are 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 um, putting themselves inside of the characters and they're they're having pleasure at being a subject in a movie and not an object. So when I read that essay, I just thought, you know what, I'm not going to hold back from trying to do my own fantasies. I'm going to examine my own fantasy life like as if I'm a, a psychologist analyzing myself and I'm going to focus on my own fantasies that are specifically feminine and female and without being ashamed of that and then try to create a, a cinema a visual pleasure for women and to make that the focus of my filmmaking yeah I think that's really fascinating and just as a side note um I guess I'm curious when you're crafting a film like The Love Witch um, that is specifically going to be for female visual pleasure. Um, do you give any thought to like male viewers um, or is it just sort of not like not an issue that you consider? Well, of course I consider the whole audience and the so, so I'm, I'm sort of aware 
of trying to give something specifically to the male audience. And I think what I'm giving to the male audience is the same thing that I give to men in my life when I'm interacting with them. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's kind of like what, what you give to men as a woman who's aware of, of the male gaze as you try to be, you know, pleasant for them, you try to be pleasurable for them, but it isn't like giving your whole self, you know, you give them an image or you give them, you know what I'm saying? It's kind of like, um, I, I understand there's an overlap. So female sexuality, I think is, you know, heterosexual female sexuality is, is largely about being looked at, I think being looked at and being considered beautiful or desirable and male sexuality as far as women are concerned, is also about looking at women and finding them beautiful and desirable, right? But it's, so there's sort of like, people may not not understand the fine line, but I don't think it's, it is really a fine line because it actually makes you create different cinematic choices like across the board. So for example, like if I were a guy creating this character of Elaine, like why wouldn't I just do full nudity? You know, why wouldn't I just have Elaine nude all the time? Or why wouldn't I have her like, why would I bother to have to put her in, like, long sleeve, high necked, long <laughs> dresses covered with lace? Like, why would I do that if I could see her full body? But, of course, um, because it's about my fantasy, I don't really want to see her naked body. I want to see, I want to be her and wear her clothes and wear her makeup and be playing dress up. You see what I'm saying? So it's kind of like... Um, you know what I'm saying? It's not about, it's like the men can get something from it. And I understand, you know, like when a woman plays dress up, she's doing a couple things. Like she is trying to get male attention, but often she's kind of more doing it for herself or maybe even her girlfriends, you know, but it's not like she's excluding men or it's just not that she doesn't enjoy men looking at her. It's just that that's not her whole point and purpose in life is to kind of go out and try to attract a man. Whereas men, always think that that women only do things for them you know <laughs> like they only they only want to be glamorous for them whereas glamour is its own thing it's kind of like you know what i'm saying it's its own category and it has its own power um apart uh, completely apart from that and which is what you know so if you t- like like if you take fashion magazines as an example fashion magazines are women photographed for other women to look look at right because it's about clothing, makeup, and style. And so that's kind of the focus in some ways. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And as you were saying that, I was thinking of that scene where Trish um, goes into Elaine's apartment and takes her wig and puts it on and puts on the lipstick. Um, were you sort of intending to work through some of that um, beautifying and glamour for the self in that scene yeah i mean i think she was there were were a couple things going on in that scene one is that um she wanted to have what elaine had because whatever elaine had was it stole her man away but on the other hand she was in a period of deep grief so it's kind of like she's thinking i have to do this otherwise i'll be unhappy my whole life otherwise i'll keep losing men to women like that so it's like i gotta become a woman like that And on the one hand, she is fascinated with it because it's interesting and she's creating a new character for herself. But on the other hand, it's tragic because she's then, you know, maybe possibly, she's possibly awakening a part of herself, but she's also partly 
maybe killing a part of herself, a part of herself that doesn't care what people think of how she looks, you know? That's just confident in who she is. So it's kind of like, I kind of see that um, scene as a kind of, an, we, see, we see the process by which a woman is indoctrinated into feeling like she has to perform for men and that it, sometimes it can come through grief. So we see that in Elaine, it comes through grief and in Trish, it also comes through grief. And then I show the, the blonde twins at the club and they're being indoctrinated into it and they don't seem very happy either. So it's weird because even though I love glamor so much, um, I don't think it's always, it's kind of like there's a difference between just enjoying glamor and doing it for yourself and this kind of, this feeling of, of this terror, like well, what happens if you don't do glamour? Will everyone hate you? Will you just be like a pariah, you know? Well, let me, I want to really quickly ask you about um, the sort of role of artisanship. And then I did want to come back. I have a question about the, um, this sort of indoctrination process and the character of Gayen. Um, but I did want to ask you, um, Seems like there's a real role of artisanship that's really important in the Love Witch um, and important to its visual pleasures. Um, so I'm thinking of not only your expansive sort of artisanal work in all different areas of the film, right? Directing, writing, editing, designing and sewing costumes, hand hooking that amazing pentagram rug, um, to name just a few. Um, and then I noticed a lot of sort of handicrafts and in the film itself. So like Elaine's painting, um, the candles that she makes, um, these perfectly manicured cakes, um, and then of course the meals that she makes for her victims. Um, so could you talk a little bit about um, this really strong thread of hand and creative making in the film? Yeah, I kind of thought it would be interesting to create a parallel between my labor and the character's labor as women's work. Um, and in fact, if I didn't do all those crafts, if I hadn't done all those crafts myself, I couldn't have made the film because um, there just really wasn't the budget to pay other people for all that labor because it was really a ton of labor. It would have needed a gigantic large apartment. So I think that in itself um, becomes a source of like women's witchy power is kind of rather than having women's work be just like a drudge it becomes like a power you know the ability and even the willingness to do that much work with my hands so patiently and for years and it's a type of work that often goes unrewarded when women do it but in this case it becomes a movie <laughs> so that i you know i you know it's interesting that you asked that because i don't think anyone's ever asked that before but for me it was kind of like a very political thing to do that um, you know, where, um, I mean, there's a tradition in the art world of that, right, about artisanship um, in women's work, which I was kind of drawing on. And, um, but, you know, most people don't notice it. So I love that. <laughs> I love that you asked that question. Yeah, and I guess, sort of on a related note, I'm curious, as seven years, right, to complete, um, as you're sort of physically making these props and paintings and costumes, 
Do you feel that over that time, um, your relationship to the story changed or uh, maybe your impulses for the final product? Yeah, I mean, I was able to keep refining the script, which was good, um, and to keep getting more and more into the world of it. And I think creating the objects was one way to actually understand the world I was creating a little bit better, and also to learn about kind of becoming a witch. Because witches also um, create their own objects. They create all their own altars, their own altar objects, and they create wands and spell books and everything. And so um, I felt like I was trying to kind of become a witch a little bit to sort of feel a little bit more of what it's, what it's like to be a witch. And I just, I discovered that being, witches, being a witch is just being a woman. <laughs> it's just being a woman who makes things and does things. Mm. That sort of, I did want to ask you about this relationship between Elaine and like the witch figure. Um, mm -hmm. Cause they're both pretty complex figures um, that have a lot of different meanings projected on them by other people um, and perhaps have their own power. Um, so Elaine, you know, is in some ways extremely powerful but she spends so much time like contorting herself into a pleasing um, fantasy. Um, and you've talked about the witch um, in other interviews, the figure of the witch is similarly complex, is mm -hmm. maybe offering limitation power. Um, so I was curious if you could talk a bit about um, the relationship between these two sort of complex figures. One thing I was trying to do in The Love Witch is actually you ask what there is for men is try to explain to men what it's like to be a woman, because I don't think they get it. <laughs> so I think that, you know, men are looking at women mainly from the outside and not really as humans in some way. And so there's this constant. So I think of like a witch from the outside is like a male point of view, which from the inside is a female point of view. So I'm trying to do a, a female point of view. So like to um, create a witch from the inside, so I think there's this concept um, among men that women have it really easy, especially beautiful women, because they can get any man they want. Um, and so I see so little in cinema uh, from the female point of view of what it's like to date or to be out in the world. And there's just so much judgment of women who conform to beauty standards and they're, they're mocked relentlessly for being shallow or stuck up or a bitch. And I think there's even more ridicule of women who refuse to conform to beauty standards or to please men. And so I created these two characters, Elaine and Trish, and each character makes a different choice and each thinks they're safe, um, but neither character is safe because each is stuck in a world where only male desire matters. So Elaine, who tries to please men, um, can get any guy she wants, but none of the men are worth it because they'll objectify her and uh, where they dominate her and there's no space for her personality to grow or for her to self-actualize or for her to actually even love them. And Trish is secure in herself with a devoted husband, but her husband goes for like a blank sexualized image of a woman, which is all Elaine gives him rather than a real woman. And I think women have been called witches because men don't understand them and their sexuality and power and everything else about them that makes them interesting is been seen as evil <laughs> for thousands of years. Um, so this is kind of an attempt to write uh, 
it's 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 like it's about time that we just started writing our own stories, you know. Yeah. So, I guess I guess I'd like to ask about. Um, we touched on this a little bit before, but sort of the tragedy of a um, her background of sexual abuse is explicitly signaled. And then we have this predatory Gayan character who her adoption of witchcraft hasn't really allowed her to escape from patriarchal power. Um, so I'm curious for you, is she more of a tragic figure than a source of horror or is it more about this productive tension between those two? Yeah, I think it's about the tension between the two because, you know, I think she's tragic because she's a woman stuck in patriarchy with no way out, but that she's also a source of horror because she's a sociopath. But, you know, I imply in the film that it's her experiences with men which have made her a sociopath and that she could reform if she had some real love or, or, or real understanding. So I think in the, in the end, it is more tragic in that sense. Yeah, I'm kind of curious to ask you, um, so at the end of the film, Elaine uh, seems almost like physically hurt by Griff's gaze, and she sort of like shrieks back, then ultimately kills him, um, and then enters this like pleasurable fantasy space of returning to the mock wedding. Um, so I was just curious, um, why end the film here? And uh, is this sort of a triumphant moment or primarily a tragic um, self-destruction on Elaine's part? Well, I think like if you, you know, cause I studied borderline personality disorder when I was writing the script and, and borderline, uh, for borderline people, when the love object is either, um, you know, fetishized, but then, but then when it disappoints too much, then it becomes devalued and discarded. And once, once it's discarded, it becomes a thing of evil and, um, and it's a thing you have to kill. So I think that, so in my interpretation is that um, she saw Griff is already dead. She just, he was already dead to her. Like once he rejected her love, it's like, okay, he's now dead. And I actually literally portrayed him as a skull, you know, like she sees him as dead. And then she, she kills him because she just has to get rid of the thing the thing that he is that has a personality so that she can fantasize about him as a thing she wants him to be. So, so basically I think the end is she has a psychotic break. And so the thing about a psychotic break is that she's not responsible anymore for, so she's gone insane. So it's kind of like the end of psycho. It's like, he's, she's not, there's no lane there anymore. You know? So it's absolutely not a triumph. So I guess if we could turn back to um, aesthetics for a minute, um, I was just curious about um, the shoot in 35 millimeter and to primarily use in-camera visual effects. Um, so I'm curious, given how seasonal and hands-on a lot of the making was, um, was it primarily for aesthetic reasons that you chose to shoot in this way? Or was there something about the physical practice of filmmaking with um, these specific technologies that was important as well? Oh, they're, they're equally important. You know, you know, film is a physical object. You can literally like take a film and hold it up to the light. 
and look through it, you see an image. It's it's absolutely incredible as a physical medium to work with. But also, there's there's uh, there's no way to capture on any other medium what you can capture on film because the way that film takes light is very special. You can also you you have a lot more range, like the whites and blacks. There's a huge range. You know, I also um, I also use analog sound on the set which nobody does anymore because that also has a much, much larger range. So like digital, like whether it's sound or image, it clips out. It's got like this range where it starts to clip, meaning like, like on video, like if you're shooting on video and, and it gets too white, it gets really ugly. Like you can't use white and you have to kind of dim things. Whereas on film, I can have white costumes. I use, I use white all the time in the sets because it doesn't clip because it's analog, it doesn't clip. And you can just, you can blow, you can blow things out. It's a beautiful, you know what I'm saying? You can, you can sort of like have a huge range. You, you know, it's, it's kind of beautiful to use that full range, you know? Um, it's also actually faster and easier to shoot with film because you're not having to lug a video village around or um, plug and unplug cables. And, and we're not watching playback. So that saves an incredible amount of time. So I can shoot actually twice as fast film which saves a lot of money i mean people think film is more expensive but if i can shoot twice as fast as long as i keep my takes reasonable i could do a huge number of takes it's actually cheaper really interesting i would have thought you know much more expensive to shoot on film well if you do like a hundred takes it is yeah because Mm -hmm. film is expensive but but if you're cutting down the number of days you have to shoot I mean, that's what, that's what like costs a fortune is hiring your crew and your actors and stuff for more days, you know? So it means you can get more setups, more coverage, shoot fewer days. And then also you, sh- you spend a lot less in post because you've got like an incredible, if you light it correctly, you have an incredible image, right? Out of, as they say, right out of the can. If you have a dense negative, you have to do so little color correcting. It's almost like done for you. Like you just like, you know, my one light dailies that I get, are, are almost perfect they're perfect <laughs> like you almost don't even need to be corrected they're perfect like if you have a good dp uh you know and then you don't have to white balance i mean it's just you know video is much more technical to shoot on film is very simple you load the film in the camera and you just press a button and you start shooting you know it's very you know what i'm saying it's it's you know it's in, in every way it's more it's more fun for me and it's more beautiful So something that you've talked about before um, is the way that some critics and viewers apply the label of parody or sexploitation um, to the love witch. I'm just curious why that characterization misses the mark for you. Well, first of all, when they talk about parody, they think I'm parodying older films. And as we've already discussed, um, I love older films. I think they're better, so why would I parody them? You know what I'm saying? I'm just using the same tools they use because I think they look really good. And so I'm using them to make, so, so like using a lot of light or using a lot of makeup. You know, these are aesthetic choices. They don't have to be funny. I don't think it's funny that to use them. I think it's beautiful. <laughs> Other people think it's funny. I mean, that's, you know, but I'm not using it that way. And, you know, in terms of sexploitation, um, I kind of see why people say that because it's an older looking film and it's got some nudity. 
but the sexploitation directors were making films for men. And the reason they sold is because they were more explicit than anything else that was on the market. So you can see how different it is in terms of my practice. I'm making very non-explicit films, which are much less explicit than any pornography on the market or, or softcore on the market. And I'm making it from a female point of view and not for, I mean, you know, sexploitation films were just like an early form of pornography. They were just for men to wank to basically. And, you know, the fact that some of them were good or had good stories or good acting and stuff, you know, that's, you know, that's because some of those filmmakers knew how to write or they had craft, but you know, that wasn't the point of the movies. The point of the movies was, was that it was pornography. Right. So I don't think that's really what I'm doing here, right? Like if I wanted to make pornography, I could just make pornography, right? Um, but right. also I think like those characterizations is like another example of men just being unable to listen to women, you know, unable to he hear a woman's story. Because I've heard so many comments where people say, well, it's style over substance or it's not about anything or it has no story. I think, well, it's a woman's story. Is that, it's like, okay, it's not about anything. Does that mean like a woman's life isn't about anything? I mean, to me, that's really fascinating. And it shows the importance of actually trying to, to make women's stories because there are a lot of men who've actually never seen one because they avoid movies that are labeled chick flicks. So I'm actually doing this thing where I'm, I'm actually trying to integrate my audience. So it isn't just like, okay, this type of pornography thing that's for men, mostly for men, or like this type of uh, whatever romantic comedy that's for women that's a chick flick you know just a movie that's for everyone like how we used to make you know like a movie like um you know like hitchcock movies were for everyone you know and it wasn't like men would dismiss them as a chick flick you know yeah so one thing that struck me uh is these arresting song sequences um that really sort of take the foreground, they're not just sort of like background music. So I just wanted to ask you about these. I'm thinking of the harpist song in the tea room and then the song at the mock wedding. Well, I think I'm using those songs to get into Elaine's fantasy space. So the song in the tea room is about, you know, I, I'm a fairy lady, you know, being a fairy lady, fairy princess. So just kind of like inundating the audience with female fantasy in that scene with all the pink and then they're talking about having fairy princess fantasies and then there's a woman singing about being a fairy princess and so just to really like drive that thing home that this is what Elaine wants she wants to be like a princess rescued by a prince and um and then in the renaissance scene that's you know really completely um that's her fantasy. That's a crucial scene. A lot of people think, don't understand that scene and think, well, that's, it's too long or it shouldn't be in the movie, but that's where we see what Elaine could have if she was not living in a patriarchy. That's what she really wants. She wants something that simple. So it's like, um, it's like, okay, so that's like, we're getting into the interior of the witch and she's not, you know, thinking about uh, hurting men or poisoning babies. You know, she's thinking about love and she's thinking about, being happy with a man, like very normal. Like she has like very normal, very sweet fantasies inside. You know, and that for me is the center of the movie because that shows the potential, the potential of, of you know, what, what we could have in the world without patriarchy, you know? 
So, so they're thematically quite important, I would say. Yeah. Um, so I did want to ask you, um, you've talked about how to navigate um, crew members who maybe didn't understand or believe in the project and maybe even that were sort of hostile towards you and the project. Um, so I'm curious how that really complicated your work as a director um, and if that sort of affected your, you're trying to translate um, your ideas onto the screen. Well, actually, I think it's helped quite a bit because um, the sabotage and the lack of respect started very early on with the very first films I ever tried to make. And um, so I had to learn how to make sure that I could um, make a film that other people couldn't ruin, you know? So like the first thing would be like DPs wouldn't listen to me on the set. So I had to study lighting so that I could tell them exactly what I wanted. And um, even then I couldn't get what I wanted, but it was like, I kept trying to um, be so prepared uh, that the crew couldn't come in and ruin it, whatever I was trying to do. And so by the time I got to The Love Witch, I had, you know, I made another feature, I made a few shorts. It was tamper proof. It was sabotage proof. And there were people that really actively tried to sabotage The Love Witch and would have actually destroyed the movie if I hadn't made it tamper proof, but it was tamper proof. <laughs> So they weren't able to destroy it. So we had, you know, our production crew was not only like not helping us, but they were actually actively sabotaging our efforts. So basically me and the DP had to take over their jobs, but we were, you know, we were both up to the task. And so we just did it. We did all our own, you know, AD work or all our own, um, you know, whatever uh, line producer work ourselves. But I have the movie in a space where I'd already pretty much set everything up. So, you know, so it, so it didn't fall apart. And then what's interesting is like near the very end of the shoot, um, when it looked like we were going to complete the film, is like, you know, I wasn't really interpreting it before that as a sabotage. I just thought maybe people were, I didn't know I was too busy to think about it, but at the end of the film, like the last week, it was such a deliberate sabotage, you know, literally like, I mean, I can't even explain how strange it was where everybody on the crew became aware that it was deliberate sabotage. It was very strange. And then I realized, oh, that's what's happening. They're trying to get it so we don't complete the film. Like how strange is that, you know, like to work on a film and then try to ensure that you don't complete it. It was very weird, but we got through it and we made a movie, so. I think that's fascinating that you had to make it tamper-proof, so to speak, but perhaps that adds to um, such a complete, beautiful world that you've, like... Uh, yeah, well, that's one reason why I did all the all the prep on it, all the years of prep, because I wanted to make it so, like, I wouldn't have to rely on an art department who may be slacking off. And as it turned out, I didn't have a reliable art department. So it was good I did that, you know, because I couldn't, I, I just thought I can't leave this to the end. And then what if I don't, um, you know, you know what I'm saying? Everything was like that, everything. Um, so maybe, yeah, maybe it did make it more complete. Um, I, you can't make a movie like that though anymore. I mean, I can't spend years making every movie. So 
um, I have to get, I think I have to get more support in the future, you know, like more, more, you know, like has to be more like a normal division of labor is something I would really like to have. Yeah, I mean, that kind of segues naturally into um, my last question. I wanted to ask you about your current film project mm-hmm. um, that I was able to read a little bit about um, that you've sort of tantalizingly described as a Bluebeard tale. Yeah, it's a it's a kind of a reworking of the Bluebeard fairy tale, but it's through um, it's through the kind of women in peril genre from classic Hollywood. And a lot of those movies have been called Bluebeard films because they're about a woman who's married to a man who might be trying to kill her, you know, and she's afraid of him. And it's really like the basic uh, basis for almost all Gothic novels, actually. All romance novels are based on this kind of, it's Wuthering Heights, it's Jane Eyre, it's Rebecca. (laughs) It's like, it's all about a man that you're terrified of, but you're also terribly attracted to. And you're not really sure, is he dangerous? Is he going to kill me? Or is he the love of my life? You know, and it's that dilemma That's the, you know, gothic dilemma par excellence. But also Bluebeard is the ultimate horror tale. It's very bloody and it's very disturbing. And it's, it's, he's basically a serial killer. So I thought it was interesting because it's like combining like a serial killer movie with a kind of gothic romance. And so again, it's sort of like combining the things that women traditionally have liked through the 20th century, like all this gothic romance. and then things that men t- tend to like, which is like a kind of a bloody, gory horror tale and, you know, trying to put it together. Yeah, I guess I'm very interested to see how you're going to tackle the gore, um, like a visually beautiful, perhaps, rendition of gore or glamorous gore. <laughs> I don't um, know. I think, I don't know if I, I don't know about glamorous gore. I mean, you know, actually a lot of people do glamorous gore, right? Like Jario Argento and you know, all those Italian guys were doing glamorous score, right? I'm not sure light glamorous. I don't, I'm not sure uh, death should be glamorous, actually. Um, I think death should be sad, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. So I think like, I mean, it's weird. Like a lot of the um, movies, the slasher movies, I mean, it's almost like they're, they're designed to have us laugh when people are killed because it's just so like, like we laugh because we're nervous or because, you know what I mean? It's a kind of a knee jerk reaction because it's so awful, but also there's a kind of a callousness sometimes where people are laughing because they actually like delighted that these people are getting killed. Like, yay, they're, they're dead. You know, I hate them, you know, <laughs> especially with a lot of movies um, which feature like sexy women being killed. You, you, you Sometimes if you sit in an audience, you'll, you'll have people like, rooting for the whatever the, the killer you know because that bitch that's that you know she's dead now ha 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 you know it's it's weird to me so I, i'm trying not to do that you know so like a lot of it is like how do you do that how do you how do you kill kill people and not and not be rooting for that to happen like how do you make how do you make death you know how do you bring it how do you bring it back to being scared like actually tragic you know yeah, I almost, it seems like maybe this film will be a little bit of a mirror image of Love Witch, just because we're sort of rooting for the sociopathic but tragic Elaine, um, who is sort of working her way through these victims um, in peril, perhaps. Um, and then to see like the inverse of that, where presumably we would be um, rooting for the female 
potential victims. Yeah, we're not rooting for the, the serial killer at all. And I think, you know, I, you know, I liked, you know that movie, have you seen the movie Frenzy? Um, it's a Hitchcock movie from 1972. Well, it's not very popular. It's kind of, um, it's a very disturbing movie. It's really hard to watch, but I think it in some ways is one of the best, I think it's the best uh, slasher movie that I've seen. And it, I think it's because even though it's like the deaths are, are so horrifying, um, there's, there's a sense of morality attached to it. That's a very old fashioned sense of morality where we really hate the killer. Like there's absolutely no ambiguity. Like we're absolutely not rooting for anybody, anybody to be killed by him. And we hate him so much. He's so despicable and so repulsive and so disgusting. And I feel like those are the proper emotions to feel. Like, especially if it's somebody you know. So it's kind of like, rather than feeling like you're like the killer and you know, you're rooted, you know, you're angry and you hate a lot of people and you're so happy you kill people because you want people to die because you're mad. You know, I don't think most people are like that. I think most people are more like, you know, your sister or your, you know, your ex-wife or somebody is murdered. Like, how do you really feel about that? How do people really feel? You know, that sense of tragedy is just, it's almost like unspeakable. I think that frenzy does that. It says, because that feeling of like, the sickening feeling that people really have when people are killed, you know, people that are, you know, and it's like nobody really deserves to be killed, right? So, I mean, I think like in old movies, they had a lot of people that were killed. Um, like the only time it was okay for people to be killed is when they were pure evil. And then in the slasher era, you have all these people that are killed that aren't evil, but it's it, it, like, are you suggesting that they're evil by killing them and not making it be sad? Like. So it's like a sexy, attractive woman in high heels walking alone at night. Is she evil? Well, I think maybe these movies are trying to say she is evil. She's evil because she's a woman and she's hot and she doesn't want you. You know, it's sort of like, I think slashers have been like that forever. They've been like that for 60 years. And I don't, I don't, um, I don't know. I think. I think it's, I, I like the other point of view. I like, I like the point of view before it shifted, you know? So I think like the, the women in peril pictures are just, are kind of like precursors to slashers. But it's back when the sympathy was all on the side of the, of the victim. The empathy was on the side of the victim. It's before the empathy went to the killer. And so, again, I mean, it might, you know, seem old fashioned to people, but, you know, I like, I, I think that's, I think that's part of my project to um, to kind of create female fantasy on the screen because I don't think anybody wants to be murdered. You know, that's not a, that's not a, anyone's personal fantasy to be murdered. I don't think. You know? Right, and it seems almost like um, removing ironic distance um, that gets created with the sort of. Um, the wisecracking slasher who you're sort of relating to, but um, the victims are sort of kept at an ironic distance. Like perhaps that is something that you're interested in removing. Yeah, I mean, again, it's like, I just, I just think like the scripts and story and moral structures of these older films, I mean, I'll just say, I think they're better. I think they, they were better writers and they knew better how to organize um, you know, characters and, and situations and ideas and plots. And I think like the, 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 um, the thing that they try to do now 
to be shocking is to like kill as many people as possible and have it be as gross as possible and also to put really inappropriate humor in it. But if you think to the fact that those kinds of, these are conventions at this point and they've been conventions for decades, it's not shocking anymore. And I kind of feel like maybe what would be shocking was to be serious again, you know, about it. Yeah. You know, there's a whole generation of people that have never seen a, a slasher that takes it so seriously, you know? Yeah, well, I'm very, very excited to see your next feature. Um, so this is all that I had question-wise. Was there anything that you wanted to or? I mean, I think we covered a lot. I, I guess the only other thing I would say is that during the quarantine, I've written another script and it's a lower budget than Bluebeard. Um, I've had a really hard time getting Bluebeard off the ground because it has a kind of a sizable budget and this is a lower budget. So this one might go first and it's a medieval horror tale. So, and it's a ghost movie and I'm excited about that too. Ooh, that sounds very intriguing. All right, well, thank you so much. Thank you um, so much. There's great questions by the way. Oh, thanks. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.